This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking cool as a cucumber on a rather hot summer's day, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Well, I have to say, this, it is a relief coming inside, but over in Cambridge, I think in that direction. If not, it's in that direction. <laughs> we have Paulis, Lordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson. At your service, my darling. <laughs> Lovely to see you again. It seems ages since we've done this because you've been gallivanting. I mean, you've been to the other end of the country or the yeah. bottom end of the country. Um, and you must have an awful lot of things to tell us that, uh, about what you've seen, like planty stuff. Well, I have all <laughs> kinds of things, including I seem to have gained a stick insect. Um, what? what? Well, <laughs> I came back from Somerset and Devon, where, where we did our holidays. Anyone who follows me on Instagram and Twitter at Thunder Fairy may have seen a video of a bright green thing running up my arm. I asked the Internet, what is this? Because I think it must have come in the plants from the south of the country and it turns out there are kind of naturalized escaped stick insects in Cornwall and Devon and Somerset and I think I must have brought one back so the past days since I returned from holiday have been all about trying to investigate stick insect care and uh, create my little insectarium terrarium type habitat bramble apparently that turned out that's what they eat and he's called Bert so far so <laughs> That's the latest exciting thing in my life, aside from all the planty uh, discoveries on my holiday. Um, we are also, I think, a little bit giddy today because we've got Ian Roof back. Hello, Joy. team. Hello. How are we? <laughs> uh, good, Ian. Nice to see you. And you, dear boy, and you. Nice to be back. Thanks for having me, you two. It's really nice. Well, Ian and Alan obviously work together very closely at East Ruston. Uh, we've all been friends for ages, and Ian is one of our original Get Gardening co-conspirators, but you are so busy and hard to pin down for a podcast, so we're just ecstatic that we've managed to get you for an hour of planty chat. I know you've got lots of show and tell as well. Yeah, I've got lots of plants, um, so I thought we could talk lots about plants, and then, you know what happens when we get together, we just generally sort of, other things come to mind, don't they? We talk about other things, but I do think we should hear about your planty things you've got on your journey at some point Ooh, as well, because that sounds yeah. intriguing. Well, uh, very quickly, because they're never as exciting as everybody else's, um, but I, I did a wonderful trip to a, a kind of a great gardener of the south of the, the country, Dean Croucher. We've mentioned him on this podcast before. I know Ben Preston of York Gate avidly follows his Instagram posts, and um, it just turned out I ended up around the corner from his garden. So hello, Dean. Thank you very much for giving me a personal tour and some very lovely pelagoniums as well, which might be where the stick insect came from, who knows. Uh, I also managed to pick up uh, a free plant left outside someone's house. You know, great gardeners who then say free to a good home and just leave a collection of things outside their gate. And there was a pot that had self-seeded quaking grass in it and a self-seeded Alcamilla mollus and a little tree. So I carried it for about a mile back from a, uh, an excellent walk um, so that I could put it in the car and bring it home. So that's a small snapshot of my uh, horticultural holidays. And haven't you been to Scotland, Ian? Haven't you been having exciting adventures as well? 
Oh, a while ago. Yeah, went to Scotland for a week, which was lovely, and went round Edinburgh Botanics, which was great. And yeah, that was beautiful. I could have spent so much more time there because I absolutely love that garden. I mean, and the glass houses alone are, are lovely. And, and one of the highlights for that for me, although Alan does grow these in a shady part of East Ruston, was seeing huge drifts of uh, Himalayan blue poppies, which of course I would agree, I mean, they love that Scottish climate. They love that cool, as he always says, that sort of cool, moist air. They love that sort of rich, leaf mouldy, peaty soil. And just, I mean, there's some growing in the, uh, the, the North Garden, a little bit of the North Garden of Allens, and, and they've been doing well for the last few years, really, haven't they? Considering old dry East Anglia, Al. Well, considering they're, they're in the wrong place in the wrong part of the country, I think we have to be very grateful that they do, do anything at all. But it's per gardeners are like everybody else. We're, we're all perverse. I mean, I had a friend in Scotland who was on the um, western coast of Scotland where it's very, very wet. It's quite mild, but very, very wet. And he always wanted to grow um, cistus and helianthemums and things oh. like that. And of course, I mean, you're fighting a losing battle, really, because it's just too wet for them. Um, and yeah. in the same way, I want to grow the Himalayan blue poppy. Um, so, you know, just a little bit of success is, is good, I think. But it was nice to see them in drift, you know, it was really nice to see them sort of in drift through the woodland. So that was a nice little trip. But apart from that, just being uh, just being busy working, you know, the gardens are manic at the moment. And you will know from your own gardens that not only are the plants growing uh, 10 feet, the weeds are having a damn good go at keeping up with them as well. It's a vintage year for weeds and it's not a bad thing, you know, but I do think this sort of vintage year is going to become a regular thing. Because I think with all the rewilding that people are doing with verges, with less things being used to cleanse the countryside i think we're going to have a lot more of this in gardens a lot more of the weeds a lot more weed seed a lot more of nature reclaiming the cultivated plants that we grow and it's no bad thing in my opinion but sometimes you know it's a little bit much and mother nature really needs to rein her neck in a little bit <laughs> i'm sure yeah. she's feeling it now that you've spoken <laughs> it was funny coming it. back from my holiday two weeks of i think a real mixture of warm temperatures and rain meant that everything had exploded and it was exciting to run around and see what had grown, what had fallen over. There was a bit of that. And, you know, mm. what, what was in flower, my Nicotiana Tinkerbell, which I've been waiting on, the one that evaded the mollusks, that flowered. Um, I cannot uh, kind of endorse that plant enough. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and I've got another sowing of those coming on. Uh, but I mean, talking of a vintage year, the mollusks for me have been a nightmare. I don't know about in your garden, Ian. I think you feel them a lot in a smaller garden. I know that obviously they're a problem everywhere, but when you've only got a limited space, they can just decimate things. Yeah, they can. I've been quite lucky really, because I've got a lot of bird feeders up and I've got these um, little metal saucers, quite well, say little, they're about sort of 18 inches across. I've got three of them tucked in the borders for all the birds to bath in. They're just at ground level. And actually I think that what's happening is the blackbirds and the thrushes and lots of other things are actually keeping the mollusks down. I've been really lucky, but these sort of saucers just sitting in the border. I came home earlier and uh, one of the blackbirds have been having a bath in there and stuff. And I think that encourages them to feed in the undergrowth. I've got a lot of plants in the garden it's only small but it's full but one thing that's done really well this year for me and done too well and needed staking was Althea cannabina and it's not flowering yet or I'd have brought it in but it will when it starts flowering it's going to be flowering at nine feet and I've never had it that big I mean it's a it's quite a wavy herbaceous plant that gets tall but it's needed a lot of staking this year and flowering at nine feet is unheard of it's phenomenal for that plant it's it's really been very exuberant with its growth this year it really has yeah, lots of exuberant plants. I mean, I had a lovely walk around East Ruston Old Vicarage and I think exuberant would be the word at the moment, Al. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we can't, as Ian said, you know, everything is exuberant. It's not just the plant, it's the weed as well. But I'll give you a couple of examples because um, I think a couple of years ago, I went to Crig Farm. Well, we did, we did it through email and I bought from them one of the tree dahlias that is, is supposed to flower in this country. So it means a shorter season of growth before it actually flowers. And we left the tubers in. I mean, and you know, there's one in the front of the house with its back against a warm wall. It's 12 feet tall already. I mean, that is amazing. The ones in the border are probably only six or six, are they about six feet, seven feet tall? Yeah, about six Some, feet already, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the one against the wall, you see that's, He's, he's got all the exuberance of the climate that we've had, this, you know, the, all this lovely moisture and humidity and everything else, but it also got his back to a lovely warm wall. So he's shot up the leg. Or sh my grandfather used to say, that boy's shot up the leg. Means he's grown tall. <laughs> is it Dahlia excelsa, that one, isn't it, that you've got because it starts flowering earlier than Imperialis and you're guaranteed yeah. a better show before the cold yeah. weather hits, aren't you? Yes, yes. And I mean, the flowers, that, the flowers are not that exciting. They're single and they're mauve and they're typical sort of single species dahlia type flowers. But just to have them in flower on a plant that size, that's what the excitement is, I think. Yeah, it's a, a, a lovely thing. And, it, and it, it's, it's done really well in the autumn ball, but where the autumn borders at yours, it, it's come back really well with a, a yew hedge behind it. And I think we did lift a few and pot them just as an insurance policy, but the rest have done phenomenally well. And they're going to look yeah, spectacular later yeah. this year. They really are. I was mucking around the greenhouse and I discovered something else I bought last year, which is Dahlia imperialis crossed with Dahlia campanulata. And Dahlia campanulata is another tree Dahlia, but it has hanging heads of bell-like flowers and they're white with a maroon centre, purpley maroon centre. Really, they really are lovely, but I mean, whether we'll ever get that to flower outside in the garden, I don't know. My plants, I have to say, are a little bit neglected because they were under some other plants that were growing away and they've got to be etiolated. Um, but next year, I've, I've resolved to take better care of them and hopefully they will, <laughs> they will look in better condition. I think, I think you could have 10 more glass houses, Alan. We'd still manage to fill them. I think we would. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the most exciting thing. I love going through the sort of no entry signs and having a little fertile, as you would say, Alan, in the uh, in the glass houses. There's always a treasure or 10 to be found in there. Uh, talking of finding treasures, though, Ian, I saw mm. the briefest flash of a bucket of treasures pass by the camera as we were preparing for this podcast. Yeah, You'd I've been do... got a bucket, bucket full of bits and pieces. So... We love show and tell. Go on then. Talk us through what's been catching your eye. Well, the first thing I want to start off is is with this this shrub, which I'm pretty sure Alan must have somewhere. It's a it's a sorbaria, and can you see that foliage? It's all got the most wonderful corrugations on it. It's a, a sorbaria called Kiriloei arborea, and it's flowering at mum and dad's at the moment. And I got it, it must be about ten years ago from a flower show at Hyde Hall. I was down there with our friend Lionel, who you all know, and I bought this small plant for about sort of two feet. And it's now flowering at about 12 feet and it's about 12 feet high and about six feet across. It's quite, quite tight at the base, but it opens out and it's got these huge multiple panicles of white flowers that smell a bit like hawthorn, but they look a bit like a large aruncus or a larger stilby. And I suppose I bought it for its foliage primarily, but the flowers are lovely. And I've been listening to a lot of Christopher Lloyd recently. I've been listening to a lot of his books on audiobook while I've been working and it's made me rethink a lot of plants which I suppose as 
fashion wise as gardeners we've become a bit snobbish about and things and he was talking about cortaderia this afternoon when I was listening and I thought well actually we've become quite snobbish about cortaderia but that's just because we normally associate them with sort of front lawns in suburbia but actually as a interesting mixed scheme as a mixed border I thought you know maybe, maybe put with um Cotinus cogigria or Catalpa bignonioides or something they would look fantastic and this is a plant I suppose that some people may be quite snobbish about at the moment but it's, it's absolutely lovely it's covered in pollen beetles it's covered in insects and the foliage is great it's deciduous it's easy to look after I don't know if Al has got it but I'm going to try this autumn to take some chunks off the bottom and pop them for him if he hasn't because I think this would be a, have, a lovely addition. I've, I've got a much more much dwarfer sylvaria which, I mean, when you held it up, I thought, well, mine doesn't look like that before you start talking about it. No, it's um, that, look at that leaf it look, it's just foliage. something about no, it. Yeah, it, yeah. it hasn't got that corrugation on the foliage. Um, so mine looks like a poor relation to that, but that is lovely. I mean, it might be a nice addition, maybe, I don't know, to one of the woodland areas. It grows in full sun at the moment, or it might be something to add to your exotic garden, I don't know. But it's just a, a, a cloud, a cloud of white at the moment, and it's fantastic, and, you know. I can see that in the exotic garden, actual fact. If it's got a, yeah. if it's got, a, if it's got a tight bottom and it's, it goes out like a vase shape, it's going to be ideal for planting up close to, isn't it? I think that's quite good, isn't it? Because you can actually get things. You could get dahlias around there. You could get cannas. You could get yeah. any of those large foliage plants. And I think what's quite lovely about your exotic garden, I know that you used to plant a lot of annuals and things in there. But I know over the time you've been quite good and sort of have increased your palette of more sort of shrill stuff. And then we. For you, you know we splatter in a lot of wonderful tender exotics that you've grown and I think that's quite a nice way it's evolved over the years I know it's not quite so exuberant for the intense color that you want but for the season it gives now and for the structure and the form and and the color of foliage I think it's really really interesting still even though it's evolved constantly over the years you know well I remember talking to somebody in the garden some time ago years ago um and when, when the exotic garden was probably more about colour than, than it was about shape and form. And she actually said to me, you know, that the word exotic to me conjures up big leaves, big mm. foliage. And I suddenly thought, hmm, yes, that's probably quite right, really. Because um, otherwise it can look like a hothouse that's had the roof taken off, if you see what I mean. It feels very jungly in your exotic garden now. It's got a real sort of, you know, I mean, we've got a bamboo feel. in there. That I mean, I know this. It's a nuisance. It's a, a nuisance bamboo because it does run a bit, but I mean, it shoots up to twenty feet tall. Individual canes go to twenty feet tall, and I mean, I think that is something that that's how I want to go, and that's why we've got Tetrapanax papyrifera rex, or T. rex, as it's more colloquially known, because um, mm. you know, at the moment, that is the biggest leaf we can grow outside. Um, in England, but I say at the moment because who knows? We've got that lovely large leaf magnolia in there as well. Oh, I mean, is it, it Delavay? Delavay, yeah, it has those. Yeah. Um, uh, I suppose it looks like the flowers are the colour of a cold cup of milky coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's beautiful. I mean, that's it's, it's beautiful. But I mean, it's the leaves that we we're growing it for, really. That's that's what um, we we like. It's got fat fat buds on at the moment, like goose eggs. I mean, they're really big buds on at the moment. They really are. And um, you've got things like pollarded um, tree of heaven in there, Elanthus altissima. And yeah. we moved some um, dead men's fingers that were in the autumn borders and they were too big yeah. by an opening that Alan and Graham put in. And I, I think I was told to get rid of them, but I think they may have accidentally made their way into the back <laughs> of the 
exotic border because I thought this wonderful finely cut leaf and then imagine these flowers these yellow flowers then in the autumn you have these dark sort of turquoise broad beans hanging on them how cool that would look so I mean if they survive another year and I get told you them again they'll have to go but they look really good at the moment with like Empress Wu this hosta which is huge and they've got red and sete bananas that we've sort of peppered through there with them so you know Al provides all the wonderful plants and the inspiration and we just sort of get it all get it all in it so it's a lovely mix it really is yeah but I mean I think that it is the way you plant it in as well I mean I can provide the plants and I can suggest things but it's also the way that you plant them I mean I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that you don't give yourself enough credit for, for some of the effects that you create because they are delightful and I want oh, to well, so that people hear me say it <laughs> well, it's very, it's very, very lovely. I mean, I've always loved exotics. I used to work at an exotic garden in Norwich when I first left school part time, and that really inspired me. And then coming to work in, in uh, Ireland, an exotic garden like that, it's really lovely. I've always had a love for those jungle and those exotic plants. It's like anything. It's, it's the same again as Adam said. We're gardeners that we just want to get grow stuff that we shouldn't be able to grow. And I think that's what it's all about, really. These sort of lush foliage things. It, it, it's kind of pushing the boundaries all the time, isn't it? And trying to expand the cut, the palette of what we actually grow. Mm. Um, and sometimes, I mean, plants will be hardy. I mean, I, for instance, I mean, a common or garden houseplant, streptocarpus. I put some out in the garden. They're not there now because last winter they did die because it was quite a long period of cold last winter. But they lasted three or four years in the garden. They didn't start flowering until probably the middle of July. Um, but that's not unusual anyway. But I mean, it was quite unusual to see streptocarpus being used as a hardy plant. Yeah, I mean, 10 years ago, it'd been unheard of that you could even get streptocarpus through a winter outside. So the fact mm. they got through the winter, I think it's because you had them in that border underneath that big, was it Wellingtonia that's there? Wellingtonia, and I think some, yeah, of the, yeah. some of the dryness helped, I think. A lot of it yeah, is these it plants will take intense cold, but they won't take intense cold and wet. That's a lethal combination for them. But mm. give them a dry canopy and that really, really helps a lot of things. It really does. Um, another plant I think people probably are quite funny about are the phygelius. Now, Alan grows quite a few phygelius and some of them grow eight or 10 feet up on south facing walls. And this is um, phygelius uh, rectus um, African queen, which I've always loved them. I first saw them as um, basket and sort of container plants when I used to work at the nursery years ago, but I've had these in a south facing little border at mine. It's only a foot wide, which is really, really narrow and it's raised with, with gravel boards and timber, but it's about sort of five feet up the fence now. And it's absolutely lovely. Sometimes called, I think, is it the, the Cape Fuchsia or the Cape Figwort? Yeah. Am I right? It's got those yeah. two sort of names, hasn't it? Yeah. So a South African sort of subby shrub thing. It can sometimes um, get these sort of little, um, slugs which can sometimes slug worms that can sometimes strip the foliage but mine stay quite keen these lovely little trumpets these little trumpets very narrow but inside is a lovely yellow and then as the bottom of the petals reflex back they're bright red but the actual overall trumpet is a lovely pink so a great thing and all I do is trim them back to the fence or sort of late winter early spring and I'm rewarded with these lovely once again panicles of great pink flowers there's good yellow ones isn't there as well Al good yellow forms yeah, there is there is yeah there's also now a, a kind of um purpley magenta one that's been bred for basket plants I think but you say you first saw them as basket plants I think that's quite interesting because that shows the difference between me and you because I remember I remember seeing that grown in a border at Sheringham Hall when I was about 20 oh, wow. <laughs> which would have been I mean completely unusual and maybe it was bedded out for the summer I don't know or maybe they got away with it on the coast at Sheringham but um because the house at Sheringham Hall is actually when the Uptures had it built um uh by the, who's the man that did the red book? Humphrey Repton. Repton, yeah. 
Yeah, he, they wanted the house to have sea views and Repton said, no, you don't. You want the house behind the hill to have inland views, which faces west, because that North Sea coast is a very hostile environment. And he was quite right, of course. So, you, you know, you turn your house around and you if you want to look out to sea, well, you can go walk around the corner and do that. Um, <laughs> but to have the maximum shelter for your garden, you need it to be facing west. So that's where I first saw mm. that. But I mean, you know, Phygelis, yeah. yeah. It's a lovely, Good. lovely thing. And I grow a lot of these things. It runs a little bit under the soil too, Ian, doesn't it? Yeah, it can produce sort of, yeah, these little sort of stone oniferous roots and you get a plant yeah. a few feet away. But it is lovely. You just chop them off and then pot them and you've got fresh plants again, which is nice. Exactly. I'm hoping this is a plant that really isn't that unusual to a lot of gardeners because I think every garden should probably have a catalprin. And this is a catalpa, it's an Indian bean tree and it's a catalpa aurea. And it's one that's growing in my folks' garden that I planted, must be 20 years ago, and a little bit by their, their, their conservatory, which is this little exotic border that I did many, many years ago. And it, it's, it's a, a lovely thing. And there's a good range of catalpas to grow, but I think this is by far one of the best. And there's a couple of ways of growing it. You can leave it to get into quite a large tree and it will reach probably 30 plus feet in height and spread. And if we get a good summer, it will have those wonderful upright panicles of, of, of white flowers cross between sort of slightly are they slightly horse chestnutty but they're also slightly um foxglove tree aren't they almost yeah yeah mm. and then when they fruit you get these long thin bean like pods to it as well but the other way to grow if you haven't got lots of space is to pollard it and pollarding is where you've got a good trunk on the tree and you take back all that season all the previous year's growth back in the spring to probably about three or four shoots to about sort of four to five inches of stem then you get this eruption of sap that rises up the trunk and it forces all these shoots to come out really quickly and you get these quite large leaves on it as well and the colour is just beautiful that lovely acidy yellow is just great and the new foliage you can see the new shoots have got a slightly sort of reddish bronze tinge to them and I was only thinking I think it was it's a day or yesterday I was thinking about this catalpa Oreo and thinking would it be lovely to either plant an avenue of it or to have it running peppered through a long border or something and then just before we started Alan we said what we've been doing and Alan went oh go on Al you say I've been thinking about things to do with golden catalpas <laughs> well we were Graham and I were walking out into the tea garden have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee this morning and there is a golden catalpa there. It just grows as a freestanding tree. And, and uh, I mean, on a bright sunny day against the brilliant blue sky, this, the leaves on this tree are singing. They're absolutely beautiful. This acidy yellow colour is an interesting colour, I think, because it's the kind of colour that leavens everything. It's almost, it's, it's, well, it's, I always say it about lime green. I mean, Alcamilla mollus is a great leavener. Um, the green tobacco plant is a great leavener. Euphorbias are great leaveners. All those things with... All the plants that give us that acid green colouring. Um, I mean, Primula Francisco is another one. Um, they all have that thing of they they bring colours that clash together somehow or other. I don't know how it works. Um, there's probably an explanation for this, and I'm bumbling away like a mad thing. But we just looked at this catalpa this morning, Graham and I, and we said, you know, there's something about that tree. We ought to do something with catalpas. 
And I was telling Ian, and Ian said, well, I don't believe this. I was thinking about this yesterday. Hmm. I'm <laughs> going to edit this at the end of the video so people can see the just the wonderful joy of the reaction between you two at realising you basically had simultaneous inspiration <laughs> in exactly the same direction. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, I think Alan, what Alan says about it is completely true. because I was thinking you could combine this with really rich purples, oranges and reds for a really yeah. sort of hot, fiery, exotic mix. But at the same time, you could put whites, pale purples, mauves and blues with it. And it would all be very cool and actually quite relaxing. And that's what's great about these limes is depending on what you put with them, they react accordingly. And it's just such a great plant for that. And I mean, yeah, that, that, that zesty lime is just fantastic. Fully hardy, easy to grow uh, and at home in an exotic garden or as a, as a plant at the back of a, a nice mixed shrub. You could even put lovely um, Cotinus. I said it, Cotinus cogigrium with that rich burgundy and purple would work really well with it as well. I think, you know, but I think also contrasting flower structures. So you could put some ornamental grasses with it as well. Something like um, Cabaret or Cosmopolitan. It's just such a a universal foliage to use isn't it and it really is yeah it is and i think that's one of the one of the things that perhaps people could do more of if they're planning a border i mean i think if you look at the way um some people design borders today and let's take tom stewart smith for instance because he's probably the foremost garden designer in england at the moment doing some wonderful wonderful work one of his his signature stamps if you like is to grow um rectangular cut either beech or hornbeam columns throughout borders as accents. Well, if you don't want to do all that, I mean, you could use the Catalpa bignonioides aurea, which is, has big leaves, but there are other plants you could do, the, do this with. Um, plants like the foxglove tree, Alonia tomentosa, you see, if you pollard that down to, and leave one or two or even three shoots, you could leave four or five, you'll get leaves that are much, much bigger than the, the, if the tree had not been cut. Aelanthus altissima, the tree of heaven, you can do the same with that. That's not quite such a, a, a willing tree to pollard, but it will do it and you can do it and you can make it do that. And then of course, there is the catalpa that we've got at the end of the Thelictrum garden, which is a kind of a complete mishmash, if you like. It's catalpa bignonioides, and at the top of the stem has been grafted catalpa bignonioides nana. So we've got a baby on top of the biggin. <laughs> and that, that enforces the head, the crown, to make a very dense head of much smaller leaves. Um, and I'm just wondering, I don't know whether there's a Catalpa bignonioides nana aurea. Have you ever heard of it, Ian? No, no, I haven't. I've, I've, I've never seen that. It was, wouldn't it? Yeah, there's another one that I've got, which is the purple-leafed form of catalpa yes. as We've well. Catalpa arabescens, I think, or, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is lovely. And talking about pollarding, we also do it in a number of gardens with um, Acer platinoides crimson king. Now that's a tree which, if you let it grow, will get 40 feet high and 40 feet across easily, plus more. But actually, in, in, in a couple of clients' gardens, we use it at the back of the borders and we pollard it back every second year to a tight crown. And it puts on about sort of four foot wands of growth. And it's lovely. And we also do it with Drummondii as well. Now, Drummondii is an Acer platinoides Drummondii. It's no notorious for reverting and sporting green shoots but if you keep it as a manageable pollard and pollard it back every few years in the spring if you canny with your eye you can see the green shoots that come through you just snap them out in the spring so as the variegation takes over now they're trees that I wouldn't dream of planting unless I had rolling acres possibly but as pollards they look fantastic and repeating that colour through a border 
and that structure is a brilliant thing to do. And my, my, my thing is that give it a go. And if, 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 it, if it looks like it might be pollarded, just do it. But often it's a great way of rescuing trees in particular that have got out of hand, pollard them back, and they can really be brought back into, um, into great shapes again. You mentioned you were listening to Christopher Lloyd on audiobooks, and one of the things that I remember him doing is there's a purple leaf form of poplar um, which he used to pollard back every year, and perhaps I think in the long border. And the, yeah. other, the other thing was a very vigorous, variegated maple. And I can't remember which one it was, but he used to he used to hack that back every year as well. Think, uh, think that was Jermondii? Because that's variegated Jermondii. No, I don't. I think it was more feathery than Jermondii, actually. In ah, uh, well, it might have been. Might be one of the boxwood. There's a whole group of the boxwood aces. Um, you know that. I can't remember yeah. which one. It is, but yeah. I, you haven't. You haven't heard that yet. No, no, I haven't heard that yet. No, I'm, on, I'm only on um, I'm only on the well-tempered garden at the moment. I've got a few more to go through yet, but it's lovely to hear. It's not him narrating, of course, but it's just lovely to hear him talking about plants. I've had his books for a while and I've dipped in and out of them, uh, but I always seem to take things in better from an, an auditory point of view. And when I'm working, it's lovely to be able to listen to all these things and take it on as well. But it might be the, the boxwood aces, ace and agundo, because they pollard really well. And there's, there's some golden forms of those I've seen. And there's one called flamingo as well, which is variegated and the new shoots come out as sort of slightly soft pink, but they can get quite big trees, but pollard them back and you get these wonderful new strong growth and quite tight crowns. They're lovely. So it's definitely you, things to consider. Do you know the tree called Tuna sinensis? I do, I do. And I've seen a huge one of those uh, growing up by your pavilion at East Ruston, but I'm pretty sure that can be done as well, can't it? I wonder if that, well, I think, I think that would probably pull out as well. Imagine the new growth, because the new growth on that is shocking pink, isn't it? So yeah. imagine if you kept that crown, it would look absolutely beautiful. Definitely worth a try. I mean, it's, it's a whole way forward with things. And... I think this is the way as well, you know, with gardens being small, people are so scared to plant trees. They just don't want to do it. But that's a great way of getting trees that you like kept yeah. into a manageable space. So and definitely people who have got a small garden and want to get inspired uh, with, with kind of the bigger plants, and the bigger leaf plants they could grow and how they might be able to treat them. Dan Cooper, the frustrated gardener, who will link to episode 42 of this podcast, uh, was great. Lots of tulip chat there. But I know if you follow his Instagram, his blog, his Twitter, uh, he has recently been, um, been pollarding his catalpa. And that's very much his style of planting. So if you want to go down that route and you want to follow someone who's doing something similar, he's a uh, He's a great shout for that. What have you got next, Mr. Roof? Common old feverfew, one of the Tanacetums, but it's, it's looking so lovely out in some uh, stock beds uh, at mum and dad's, mixed in with some, underneath some Berberus that was there as well, and with some um, Salvia caradona near it as well. And I thought how lovely it would just be to lace it through a border somewhere. It's a plant which we tend to overlook. It can sometimes be a, a weed for some people, but just that sort of lace through a border, I think it would give it a wonderful froth. You mean the way we've used... Original annuus. Uh, well, you did in that colour scheme by the teak house. It looks absolutely gorgeous. It really does. That is absolutely gorgeous because oh. it just, it's like a sprinkling of sort of fairy dust through the border. And I mean, you know, it just livens everything up. It, I'm, I'm going to grow more and more of that, I'm, I'm sure. I find that I find that very exciting as a plant. Having never known about it, it is mm. just, it, it's just this wonderful... Well, fog's not, but it's this wonderful haze, this this mist, this froth that just works its way through. And then you'd put in that, what was that lovely pink um, called squirrel tails? Or pink oh. squirrel? Oh, sang sanguisorba. Sanguisorba. Lilac oh, squirrel. God, it was just, yeah. 
just love. I can't. There was a garden. There was a big house up on the in the west west of Norfolk. It does wedding. Is it Narborough Hall? Yes. And I remember going to Narborough Hall about ten years ago and not seeing that. But their borders had this wonderful sort of romantic froth all the way through them. Do you know? And I think that's a really difficult thing to do, actually, because if you let nature do too much, it becomes weedy. And, and to have the time to edit out all the things you don't want it. And, and that planting, I know you weren't inspired by that, but it just reminded me of that wonderful sort of romantic froth of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Right. It's so Things hard are, to do that. Well, it just brought everything together. It started up. There's going to be a fight in there. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do, because there are five clumps of a mombrisha or a crocosmia in there. And I know that it's completely the wrong colour and I'm going to have to cut the flowers off. But that doesn't matter. Um, but my planting scheme is inspired by that pink hydrangea paniculata that's in there. Oh, lovely. I suddenly yeah. thought, I suddenly thought, oh, I've got a salvia called Penny's Pink that is very, very similar in colour to that. So we can put those two together. And then I have the salvia bullulata, which is got kind of bluey green flowers, almost turquoisey bluey green flowers and a green zinnia. And then I found that I, I sent away some plugs of a very dwarf cosmos, which is kind of it's it's pink with touches of orange and purple in in the petals. It's a very it's like a shimmer on it. It's very strange. And all those colours, they work together so well. Um, but then the Origeron annuus coming through it with a haze of white daisies just lifts everything. Mm, very oh. beautiful. And yeah. I think probably quite an, a good way that for gardeners and garden designers and people like that to think. You just suggested doing that kind of thing with Tanacetum, which I think is lovely. Um, and maybe there are other plants that we could use to, to do that, do a similar sort of job. I mean, grow them, if, it's got to be something that's easily grown. It's got to be something that you can grow reasonably um, reasonably quickly in large numbers to be able to use generously. Because I think probably in that little bit of border, I've used maybe um, between 80 and 100 plants of Rigeron annuus from nine centimetre mm. pots. I think probably as well, it's that, that Asteraceae group is probably the one to go for, isn't it? It's those daisies which add to that nice yeah. sort of frothy look as well which oh, yeah. is lovely yeah, it is so what do you have next uh, so a, a, a few more bits uh, to talk about um i put these two together because they look they look quite nice together but i've got out in the front in my little board at the front of the house i've got um helichrysa metallicum the curry plant and i got it for the foliage really and the, but the flowers on it at the moment it's the first year it's really flowered well are absolutely lovely this sort of sulfury mustardy yellow and i know a lot of people, and Christopher Lloyd would say, I don't know why you want to grow the flowers on that because it, it, it's awful, but it's looking beautiful at the moment. It really is. And um, the insects are loving it. It's great for the pollinators. Lovely silver foliage, really well behaved, drought tolerant. Um, will take a good trim up late winter, early spring if you need it. The whole plant overall, including flowers, is about sort of 18 inches height and spread, but it's looking really, really lovely. I know that people sort of use these things all the time but I've really seen this in a new light and that's because it's growing with some sweet william some dianthus barbatus and I just thought how nice those two look together I love sweet williams I'm always growing sweet williams I always get my dad to sow a load and also you know wallflowers as well and things but these dianthus barbatus are lovely and I thought that combination was pretty fantastic and I also thought I've got in the back garden growing verbena officinalis bampton and I thought, oh, well, look at those three together. They look really quite nice, I think, with those wonderful sort of uh, very delicate, soft, pale pink flowers and that wonderful, those sort of rich purple stems and purple foliage. So 
they're three plants which I think I'm going to try them in some clients gardens and try them as a mixture because they all like the same sort of soil conditions they like it free draining they like it gritty they like it very very sunny and there's a theme what do you think Al there's a theme I think that would work quite quite nicely I think the whole thing is just so refreshing because you've taken three plants there that you probably you wouldn't even consider putting together and I mean I just think they look fantastic together I think it's it just it's a spark. It's an original way of using those plants. And I, I just find it very exciting. I think, I think the look could be lovely. So I don't know if I'm going to try it. I'm up to speak to a friend that's got a large garden and see if I could try it in one of his beds somewhere. <laughs> I'll see. Uh, I'll see. I'll see how that goes. But I was thinking as a scheme, it might be really quite interesting and a bit and a bit natty. And you could even then possibly weave some tulip, maybe some orange tulips through it for the spring to go with the sort of reddish foliage on the, not the flowers, but the reddish foliage that you get on the new growth on the, um, uh, on the Sweet Williams and then that sort of purple foliage you get on the Verbena Bampton as well. So there's three things definitely worth trying. Um, I've got a couple more sort of odd things. Um, I know I've talked about this before and I think I have talked about it before, but it's just such a brilliant border plant. It's Diasia personata. Um, there's one called Hopley's form, but the reason I put this in is because I grow the pink form but I know that Alan has sourced a wonderful, rich orange cultivar as well, haven't you? And I want and you to us tell killer. us about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, tell us about it, because if, if it's as good as this, it's going to be a great border plant. Well, I think it probably might be as good as that, actually. But um, I, we, when we had our plant fair, um, Ed Brown came with, with a lovely selection of plants, as usual. Um, and he actually brought me some lovely name varieties of, of Nerines, which was very kind of him. Um, but he had two plants of this orange uh, Diaschia personata, which I'd read about but hadn't seen, and I just had to have them. And I hope that it's going to, I mean, it looks entirely like personata, but with orange flowers. Mm -hmm. um, so I hope that it's going to be as good. Um, I'm going to, I've got one still in a pot. I'm going to pot it on and put it into a much bigger pot and use it as a stock plant to take lots of cuttings off. So we have more of it next year. I mean, if the colour's great, and if it's got the, the long season of flowering that Personata has, because this will start flowering, I mean, you know, late May, early June, and then June, July, August, September, um, October, if we get a mild autumn, that a huge season of flower. And it's just fantastic. Flowers about three to four feet on quite sort of, it's got these lovely square stems to it, very, very strong. And it, it has a great lot of sort of, of movement to it, but it's, it's not dense at the bottom. It's quite sort of airy in its habit. It doesn't tend to sort of form a, a blob, does it? It tends to have no, a nice feel about I've, it. I've got it growing through rose bushes. So the idea is that it hides the ugly part of the roses. Mm. So it covers the bare legs and the stems that you don't really want to look at. It's a great weaver, Diaschia personata. Yeah, so one definitely. So it's just that as I've got the orange form, I was thinking if that's got any of the traits that this has, it'd be, be really good. I've got two more things. Is that all right, just quickly? Um, Sphalsia, lovely Sphalsia, and this is. Sorry, I think Thordis acquired one of these yesterday. Ah, go on, Thordis. What, what made <laughs> you love it so much? I was walking through Alan's uh, greenhouse, and I said, oh, "What is this?" Um, and it's all all the things I love. I mean, we all know every single podcast I talk about how much I love these sorts of tones, but it's form. It's got a lovely sort of soft. Mm almost like a grey hue to the foliage as well. It's just beautiful. And the foliage offsets those peachy apricotty kind of little mallow flowers wonderfully. I think this one is Childerly, isn't it, Al? Yes. And there's, there's a slightly darker one, is it? And there's New Zealand Coral, which is that sort of slightly rich, as the name suggests, corally colour. But this is, it's got those sort of, 
they're sort of salmony, apricotty flowers, aren't they? It's obviously part of the part of the mallow, one of the mallow relatives. But you're right, Thoris. It's just lovely flowering at about four feet uh, in in um, in my garden, and it's it's um, near near Clematis gerandii, which is a lovely sort of rich purpley mauve that I've got on the fence behind it, and it works really. It works really well. Uh, it's lovely there, so it's growing well. I think it's a it's a great plant, the Seralsias. And once again, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, we wouldn't have thought of having them as, as perennial plants. But since our climate's changed, they're they're, they're really lovely. I'm, I'm glad you fell in love with this because oh. it's a it's a cracker of a plant. And and while um, you're talking about clematis, um, yep. the last time I was talking to you, just in real life, not on a podcast, uh, we had a conversation around climbers and I found it as by far the newest gardener who's ever involved with this podcast, I thought it was really illuminating to hear how many climbers you would put in a space. Um, and I, and I, I thought it was very exciting. So could you possibly share some uh, of your climbing wisdom? Well, I can, but the reason I do like this is because for the last 12 years that I've been sort of working at, at Allen's, I've seen how he plants climbers and I thought I'm going to go all out with this and I thought plant like grey, plant like grey, because what you've got to think about is really that the border space that a climber takes up is really only probably a square foot maximum, think about it, it's all it really needs for the crown, even maybe six or eight inches, so I've got uh, a section, of lots of fences around the garden, quite a small garden, but my main aim was was to cover them in climbers and on a um, 12 foot stretch of, of fence, um, I've got about 15 climbers sort of doing their their thing, some which probably shouldn't be there. I've got this wonderful climber that I got from East Ruston from Al. It's called Cyanura oreophylla, and it currently swamps a large holly on Alan's entrance path. And it's got large leaves, quite succulent, quite juicy, but it has flowers like a hoya, as Alan will, will tell you, these wonderful sort of flowers like a hoya. And the scent is absolutely wonderful. And I've got that on the fence. I've got three or four different clematis that are in there as well. I've got some lovely um, sort of small, compact climbing roses that a friend Matt gave me who works at, at Horning Hall. I've got abutilons. I've got phygelius. Uh, I've got honeysuckles. Um, I've got uh, some sweet peas plugged in for the summer through there as well. I've got the golden leaf truclospermum called golden memories. I've got clematis durandii. Um, I've got a lot of things on there. So I thought, what would Alan do? I thought, well, Alan would go big or go home and just plant it and fill it. <laughs> and, you know, in a small garden as well, if you can hide some of the boundaries, it's amazing how you forget how small your space is. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping it's going to continue to work well. Um, I've got Clematis urophila on there as well for the winter. Um, Stachyurus praecox in there as well. Um, I've got Abeliophyllum disticum for the winter. I mean, I've probably planted far too much, but we're two years in now. And it's looking really well. Everything seems to be getting on really well. And I'm really, really, I'm really pleased with it. it, it it's a brilliant mix of interesting things. But it, it all stems from Alan, because I see how he plants stuff. And I thought, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fill those fences up. I put extra posts in to strengthen it because the builders had put not enough posts in. So I put extra posts in because I knew the weight on there was going to be horrendous. And then I put vine eyes in with them um, uh, on the inside of the posts. I think I said to you before, I can... I've tensioned them so I can actually almost play notes on the wires. They're so tight. They actually ring like guitar chords. And that's a secret to it as well, because climbers can get really heavy when they're established. But yeah, it's down to Alan's. It's thanks to you, dear chap, because I thought, well, just fill the fence up, fill it up and just see what happens with it. And it, it's it's been a delight. It really has. 
Well, thank you for that. But I, I was looking at, um, I think it was probably, it's, it's either Instagram or Twitter the other day, and somebody had posted a picture of Lanisra Hildebrandiana. Oh, uh, yeah. People that don't know it, it is the largest leaved honeysuckle that, um, that we can grow. And I think it probably comes from Burma. Lin they're actually saying that Lanisra Hildebrandiana is being grown outside at Wisley. Now, do you think, and this is one for Matt Pottage when I next talked to him, but do you think that this is bedded out or do you think that they have actually, they're risking it by wrapping it in the autumn and for the winter? Because Wisley is quite a cold garden, isn't it? Yeah, it can be really cold. And I know parts of it, they garden on very heavy soil as well. But I know that particularly, you know, Matthew Pottage, new young curator, I know he's been in the job for a while, but he's very keen on pushing those boundaries. And I wonder if due to the fact they've got a really nice south-facing wall for it maybe, and they've got maybe hard landscaping nearby, you know, maybe large flagstones or, or brickweave, that's giving a lot of residual heat that might well be keeping it going. I know that Simon Gatches used to grow it quite successfully in the Bishop's Garden in Norwich, and that's sort of got that urban warming. So look, if they can grow it out, I mean, you should give it a go, because you've got, well, got one. wonderful baked walls, but does it grow yeah. outside? I've got one, you see, and I'm wondering whether to risk it. Um, yeah, it, do it. it gazes reproachfully at me every time I pass it in the greenhouse saying, what are you going to do with me and when are you going to do it? Perhaps <laughs> I've just discovered. I think take some cuttings just as a little insurance policy and then yeah. get it out on a warm wall. I mean, you could put it out on your um, on your wall by the library, maybe, because that's really hot, isn't it? But that's quite full. But you've got so many good south facing walls that would flourish. I did wonder about the west facing wall in the front courtyard behind the seat. Because geranium, uh, yeah. what I do, the reason I'm saying that is, ger is geranium madarensi grows there. Mm -hmm. And that is quite um, a tender geranium. It, it's a hardy geranium, but it's quite tender for Norfolk. That's what I'm saying. And I just wondered if, if I might try it behind that seat because there's paving there, there's the warm, warm wall, there's the seat for extra protection as well. Yeah, and you also grow Hardenbergia violacea in there, which really shouldn't really have the ability to grow outside through cold winters, really, but that flourishes in there. True. Well, so, yeah, I think it sounds know. wonderful. Sounds excellent idea. <laughs> it's exciting. I think your show and tell has one thing to offer up. Well, just one last thing, which um, is for foliage. And it's in, it, I've got this because um, Christopher Lord is talking about it in his uh, in his audio book today and it's an Eliagnus and it's Eliagnus angustifolia and it's angustifolia quicksilver and it's probably one I hope I've not mentioned it before but it's just the most wonderful foliage plant this doesn't quite do it justice here but the most brilliant silver leaves and it'll be bejeweled with tiny yellow flowers in the next sort of month or so which will have the most wonderful rich fragrance to it and it's a it's a wonderful shrub quite whereas some Eliagnus can be quite rigid and I, in his book he says I don't know he says his friend John Treasure says I don't know why you bother growing this plant Christopher it has the growth habit of ingrown toenails which it was just quite brilliant if you think about it if you've ever pruned an Eliagnus it's true because all the branches get entangled and knotted it doesn't really have a structure but this is very different it's very much more open very much looser in its habit and for a, a hot sunny border for that silver foliage sweetly scented blooms it's a real cracker of a shrub it really is so definitely one that if you are a bit snobbish about any agnes and want something that's going to reignite your passion into that plant i think quicksilver is definitely one you should be looking at 
I think I can add a privet to that, with the courtesy of Christo as well, because there was a privet that he was growing many, many years ago. I'm going back 40 years now. And it was, it was, um, it was called Kihui, and it has larger than normal panicles of typical pri privet blossom, rather like a cream, look, it looks like a cream lilac almost. Um, but it's another one of those plants that people were snobby about because it's a privet. It's a ligustrum. And, you know, well, I don't want that because it's a privet. Like you say, I don't want that. It's an Aliagnus, but there's Aliagnus, there's Aliagnus, and there's, there's ligustrums and ligustrums. Um, and I think if you know, and you, this is all the, very much interesting to me at the moment, because every time I'm moving around the garden into a different area and I see a plant that we're growing, I've, I think, well, that, that, that's rather tired. I ought to take that out. What are you going to replace it with? And I think, well, is there a better form of this that I can grow? Hmm. Are there better, more, more, you know, I mean, it's like Philadelphia's Belle Etoile, a common old thing, really. It's been around for about 40, 50 years. But it's still one of the best. Um, mm. So I would always want to have that. It's, you know, it's just searching for the, the best, but the slightly different as well, I think. There's another great form of Philadelphus I grow called Starbright, which has the most wonderful rich purple calyx and then single white flowers again. And it's got quite a sort of dark purple in the throat as well and I bought that about sort of 10 years ago and that's lovely it's got the most wonderful open habit as well whereas some Philadelphia's can also become quite staunched quite sort of rigid that once again has got quite a nice open habit to it so that's mm. star bright if anyone likes that lovely wow yeah so that's that's it really so hopefully a few bits that are interesting bits what I quite like is though that when you talk about plants with friends any plants you know like you guys are you we we can just talk about them for ages and things spring up and it's something that thought as you've bought or it's something that Alan's read about or he's been growing for 20 years or it's hopefully it might be an odd thing you might think oh I've not had that for a while I might buy it and that's why I think plants are so fantastic because they just uh sounds a bit corny but they, they they sort of link generations don't they you know it's yes. all, we've all got a love for one thing and that's just brilliant so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I just sit here thinking there are so many things I want to grow I'm gonna have to rip a couple of things out I think and replace them <laughs> I don't think I'll ever grow what I want to in my lifetime enough of it. I really, I've come to that conclusion that I'm just not going to be able to, you know, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to indulge myself in, if I can't do it my own garden, I'm going to add it to clients' gardens. Just, you know, there's just so much interesting things to grow and new stuff always being discovered or bred yeah. or brought out, you know. Yeah. You're always, and I don't know why I do this podcast because it's bad enough reading books or listening to books and visiting gardens. And that's, that's all enough yeah. <laughs> without all of this so um if you are watching or listening and feeling kind of overwhelmed by all the things you want to grow from listening to ian talking for the last however many minutes um i'm too long same feeling so we're in it together yeah. and we're going to make it worse with a spot of flomo before we tie things up and i've got so much now ian thanks to you and your show and tell but we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I've been to Dean's garden and, and Flomo, if you haven't heard the term before, I'm sure you know the feeling, just seeing a plant and having FOMO about it, this fear of missing out, like that's not in my life and it needs to be. Um, I went round Dean's garden uh, in Somerset, sort of Devon, and there were loads of things I wanted. One of them was Lady of Shalott, which was my Flomo on our Rose special last episode, Alan very kindly gave me that for my birthday. So that's ticked off Lovely. the Flomo list and it is a beautiful rose. I'm very excited. But Dean had an aeonium called Mardi Gras, which <laughs> could not be a better named aeonium, I don't think. I mean, the name just sums up the party vibe of that aeonium. Pinks, 
whites, purples, maroons. Oh. They're all there. Oh, you just, yeah, you just want to pick it up and have a carnival with it. It's, uh, yeah. it's absolutely amazing. So have I you ordered it, Al? I've got Has it. Al ordered it? Has he got it? I've got it. Yes, we bought it last year. It's a tiny <laughs> little thing. It was quite expensive. And it came and the head was about as big as a threepenny bit. So I, <laughs> so I laughed. I, well, I laughed because Graham had bought it. You see, and he said, I bought you a new Aeonium. And when it, we unpacked it, I laughed and I said, ever been had? <laughs> but it has grown. It's now about as big as a two-pound coin, I think. It's obviously oh, it's quite slow because of all the colours that are in it. And it goes green in the winter. And you think, oh, well, that, that was a waste of time. But then as the light levels increase, back comes the colour. And it is, um, it is Mardi Gras. Yeah. I'll send you a photo of Dean's, Alan, to make you jealous. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's quite, quite sizable and uh, very colourful. The yeah. other thing he had, the opposite end of the spectrum. So obviously you've got Mardi Gras kind of all singing, all dancing. Geranium summer skies, a super delicate double geranium, beautiful pale lilacs. And it, even though it's not, sort of overly ostentatious it really stopped me in my tracks it just looked like it would be a great plant to have with others you know a real good foil and beautiful in its own right um and i read about it and it seems to be a real good doer and really sort of hardy so um i might have to add that one as well it's a good choice that it's, it's a lovely geranium actually and the first time i saw that was about 10 years ago and i, I mentioned this chat before but simon gash is at the bishop's garden in norwich he was now um head gardener at summer late and he was growing it in groups running through the long herbaceous borders there and it's just lovely i think it was flowering about sort of two and a half feet high and it's good strong stems but those wonderful double flowers just really exquisite a real lovely look about it yeah yeah so that's that's my double flomo for this week what would you like to bring to the flomo party ian well mine isn't a particular plant but it's a particular style of gardening is that okay and, yeah, and it's because so it's, it's because i've been indulging in um gardens illustrated uh, i've had some time to look through and it's a really lovely feature on the delos garden that has just been created by dan pearson at sissinghurst and I was just looking and I was just thinking about that wonderful gravel garden style. And I was thinking about the plants like Bellotta pseudodictamnus. And I was thinking about Helichrysum italicum. And I was thinking about groups of, um, well, Steeper tenuissima running through. And then groups of lovely bulbs like Sternbergia lutea. And it's never a style of gardening I've ever done. So eventually, when I have a bigger house and a bigger garden, I've got Flomo for this sort of wonderful wonderful sort of Mediterranean style of gardening with all those wonderful furry textured leaves, that silver foliage, those autumn flowering bulbs. And if anybody gets a chance to look at it, this Delos garden is a, was a creation that was originally penciled by Harold Nicholson and Vita Sackville-West, I think, Alan. It was about 80 years ago they came up yeah, with the idea, well, didn't they? But it, yeah. it, never, it never got done. And having seen sort of bits about it coming to fruition, seeing it not in the flesh, but in in print and I know that Joe that works on the plant stall at Allen's was lucky enough to go last weekend and see it in the flesh it it, it just looks divine in its whole sort of 
makeup and that lovely rich Mediterranean style. And of course, it's it's a style that really in the east of England we 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 can really go with well because although we have sort of some heavy rain during the winter months, but primarily we do have very hot, long, dry spring, summers, and autumns, and it really lends itself to that. So I was thinking about ways I could incorporate that somewhere. So I'm going to see if I can. It reminds uh, me. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of that quarry garden that James Basson designed at the Chelsea Flower Show, which was very yes. very controversial because people were saying it's not a, me included I have to say we're saying it's not a garden it's a landscape which it was but I mean that is the kind of thing that that, that this is and I, I find that very exciting because Ian you're absolutely right 20 inches of rain a year on the eastern side of the country it's nothing mm. Mm. so that sort of style really got me excited really I can see why and where mm. are you with your flomo Alan well I, I've got I've got a flomo don't worry it came to me as we've been talking uh, and it was me that reminded myself of it in actual fact. But I'd just like to add another little plug for another geranium, geranium blue cloud. Geranium blue cloud has bright blue flowers. I've got it planted and beside the gate as you go through to the autumn border. And it's been blooming, I should think, probably for six weeks. It has a, a tight crown and it spreads beautifully. It's a wonderful geranium for underplanting roses because it covers all their bare stems and everything else. And when the first flush goes over, which it does towards, or when you're getting towards August, cut the whole lot back, you know, tickles a little bit of fertilizer in, give it a jolly good watering, and you may even get a few more flowers, but you'll get lovely fresh foliage. My Flomo is um, Honeysuckle, and it is Lanicera Etrusca Superba. And this is a large growing uh, honeysuckle. It's hugely scented. It's got an award of garden merit from the Royal Horticulture Society, which means that it's tried and tested. And I don't know why I haven't got it. And I was just suddenly thinking, when I was trying to think of the name of Lenisra Hildebrandiana that we talked about earlier, I kept saying Etrusca, Etrusca. What is Etrusca? And then it came to me and I suddenly remembered which one it was. It's a very vigorous, um, large growing um, honeysuckle. And I'm going to have to have it somewhere, Flomo. <laughs> And I think my promo is going to fly up into a tree, possibly. It sounds lovely. It sounds like a beautiful thing. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that uh, form. So I'm going to have to look at that. Yeah. Nice. Well, um, it's, I felt kind of overwhelmed by the heat before we started talking about all these plants. And now I definitely need to lie down in a darkened room. What an absolute extravaganza. Ian, you, you gem. Thank you for finding time to talk to us about all these wonderful, inspiring things. It's been lovely. It's great being with you as always. Really enjoy it. Well, thank you. Come back again sooner next time. All right. Take care, you lot. <laughs> Bye. Happy gardening. Bye. Hey, 4Ds here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.